As you may or may not know, Darren Watts passed on December 31st, 2022. This episode was recorded earlier in that month and is our final episode. Thank you for listening. We miss you, Darren. Stay tuned. This week, the Comic Guys Explain Event Crossovers Part 3. Yes, thank you, Ben. Uh, we will be coming back to uh, Summer Crossovers this time with probably one of the best remembered uh, Summer Crossovers. Uh, so how about we hop right in? Darren, which one are we starting with this time? So both Marvel and DC basically took 1990 off from doing this. Right. Uh, the, the 1990 is kind of, a, you know, like a rough year financially for, you know, kind of the comics industry, basically. And nobody, you know, was kind of like willing to take a big chance on something. By 1991, Marvel is ready to try again. And their their big summer crossover storyline is uh, Infinity Gauntlet which is, uh, you know, if you are at all familiar with the idea, this is the core story that the movies, Infinity War and Endgame, were kind of, were based on, right? Obviously, it goes very differently in the original comics, but, like, the basic idea and premise of it is is what was swiped, basically, to make Infinity War and Endgame. The original premise for Infinity Gauntlet, once again, was our hero, Steve Englehart, uh, who was the writer of the Silver Surfer comic at the time, and at this point in Marvel continuity, Thanos was dead. Uh, he had been killed previously, had not appeared in multiple years. And Engelhart wanted to bring back Thanos from the dead as, uh, as an enemy, as an, an opponent for Silver Surfer. And uh, so he kind of like goes to Tom DeFalco, who is the editor at the time. And Tom DeFalco had not been a big fan of the, you know, sci-fi titles of the 70s and 80s at Marvel, and he genuinely didn't know who Thanos was. He'd completely, that character had gone completely by him, and he had never heard of him, basically. Something that you would never again hear. Right, exactly, yeah. Thanos was a sufficiently minor character that literally the editor-in-chief at Marvel had to be reminded who he was, right? (laughs) So so, uh, Englehart kind of pitches this idea, and as they're kind of discussing it and, you know, DeFalco's doing some reading, basically, to go back and, like, figure out who this character was, uh, DeFalco's like, you know, this could be a big summer epic. But this could be the next thing that we do. We could do, like, a whole massive story around Thanos coming back. By that time, from the time that, like, Engelhart had first pitched the idea to the idea, you know, in, in, in 1990 when he pitched the idea to 1991 when they were ready to actually do it, Engelhart had once again gotten into, you know, like a dispute with his uh, with editorial over complete other stuff unrelated to this uh, storyline and had gotten himself fired again. Uh, you know, when, when we get around to doing our Steve Englehart episode, uh, you know, we can enjoy all of the ins and outs of, uh, his difficult relationships with editors. Uh, but basically he had, you know, burned all of his bridges again at Marvel and got tossed out. However, the idea was still there, right? That's the, Falco still thought this was a good idea. So like, okay, we're going to bring back Thanos. He's going to battle the Silver Surfer and a whole bunch of other characters. Um, we should bring in the guy who created Thanos to do this story. Let's bring Jim Starlin back. Uh, and so Jim Starlin was approached, basically Starlin had also not worked for Marvel in several years. And, you know, they asked him if he wanted to bring uh, Thanos back. He said, well, only if I get to do the story that I want to do, right? Like, I don't want any, you know, editorial interference. Let me pitch the idea to you first of what the plot will be. And once you say yes, you don't get to back up again, right? Like, once you approve this, you can say no at any point before I start work, right? But once I start work, we're going with this story. And DeFalco, whose whole shtick at the time was, I am a much nicer guy than Jim Shooter, and I am, you know, easier to get along with with my creative teams and that sort of thing. Agreed to that deal. Starlin also didn't want to do the art for this one, which he had done, you know, like art for, uh, you know, his his previous stuff. So they're looking around for a big name artist to be, you know, kind of like the feature of their, uh, you know, their big summer crossover. And Falco realizes that uh, George Perez has just finished his 
exclusive contract with DC. He's still working at DC, but his five-year time period where he could only work for DC had just gone up. I just I just ended right, um, and so uh, while he was still working on some titles at DC, Starlin, uh, not Starlin, uh, uh, DeFalco offered uh, Infinity Gauntlet to him to do. And George was like, well, you know, sure, there's an amount of money, you know, that I would do this for. And they, you know, had this all set up to be like a big, you know, event. So they, you know, offered him a great deal of money to come over and do it. Um, and so they get underway. In the pages of the Silver Surfer monthly comic, Jim Starlin comes in to take over from Engelhart before this series even starts. And so Starlin takes over the month to month. Uh, run of Silver Surfer with Ron Lim doing the art. Starlin then does a two-issue limited series called Thanos Quest, which was just like the the one storyline, basically the one one two-issue story uh, with Silver Surfer and a couple other characters in it, in which we bring Thanos back from the dead. Right. This is just all this does is explain how Thanos is alive again one more time uh, after having been killed in his last set of stories. And then that kind of is a lead in to the Infinity Gauntlet story. Uh, Ron Lim, of course, did the art on the Thanos Quest limited series as well. George Perez does the first three issues pencils and everything in the interiors for Infinity Gauntlet does the art for them. And at that point, he and Starlin, completely separate from the editorial staff, are starting to fight over the story. Right? Starlin has his very, you know, kind of like a, a set vision on how this is going to happen. Uh, Starlin uh, has a whole lot of story crammed into a very small space as far as Perez is concerned. And Perez keeps trying to push to open it up more and to like, you know, uh, let it be more than six issues, for example, and let the, you know, let the storytelling uh, kind of like breathe more. And Starlin is not willing to do that. So Perez quits halfway through the series. He doesn't have any kind of hard feelings. He's still friends with Starlin. Um, and he's still trying to get along with Marvel. He likes DeFalco as an editor. So he agrees to do the covers for issues four, five, and six. But Ron Lim, who has been doing Silver Surfer and has been kind of like part of this storyline as it was all getting set up, comes in to take over the penciling halfway through the series. So issues four, five, and six of Infinity Gauntlet are done in a completely different art style from the original, the, you know, the first three issues. Uh, I've seen both of them. I like Perez's better, but Lim is fine. You know, uh, Perez at this point is also doing War of the Gods, which we are going to talk about later this episode for DC, and is also appearing in a play. You know, like live basically, and so he just doesn't have the time to you know kind of like keep working on a story that he's just not that into. So it gets finished by Starlin and Lim to come out. It will turn into a six issue limited series and has 18 crossover issues uh, into other Marvel comics at the time. And basically it's the story that you know from the movies. Thanos assembles the Infinity Stones for the first time. The Infinity Stones are kind of like defined and explained for the first time because each of them has turned up, you know, in other comics basically, and, uh, you know, have their own kind of like backstories and gets them all into one place. Uh, he creates the gauntlet, which will allow him to control all six stones. Uh, he has fallen in love with the actual personification of death, right? Like the, 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 the being death among the cosmic beings, basically. Um, he's fallen in love with her. No particular explanation. He just, you know, during the time that he was dead, he encountered her and thought she was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. So he tries to give her several gifts with his new godly powers from his infinity gauntlet uh, in order to win her love. And one of the things he does uh, in order to win her love is to kill half the universe. There's none of the movie story about the whole trying to, uh, you know, resolve starvation and, and resources and all the other stuff that's in the plot. That's all added later. In this story, literally Thanos kills half the universe as a present for death, basically. And so half of the universe, including half of everybody on Earth, dies in the first couple of issues of the story. The deaths are different in the series. Hawkeye dies in the story in the first couple of issues is one of the half the universe uh wong 
dies in the first uh, story, Cersei, the entire country of Japan gets just wiped off the planet. So it's not even like a, it's not evenly divided, right? Uh, across the world. The entire rest of the uh, series and all the crossover issues is basically, once again, everybody in the Marvel universe teams up against Thanos. A big chunk of the story is how all of the different groups that are fighting against him are bad at working together. Right. Like the superheroes are not working with the gods who are not working with the cosmic entities. And like everybody is kind of working at cross purposes. Um, Dr. Doom is fighting them. Galactus is fighting him. All of these, uh, you know, uh, different characters are doing this. Uh, and Adam Warlock, who is the guy who killed him last time, also returns for the first time in, in a while. And he and Silver Surfer kind of like team up to manage the campaign against Thanos. Uh, issue number four of the limited series is a huge super battle where a whole bunch more superheroes get killed uh, on top of the half of the universe, right? They li literally just die in combat against Thanos. At the time, that wasn't quite the cliche that it would later become. I mean, obviously, nobody thought it was uh, going to stick or anything, but it was still at the time a sufficiently new idea that it was kind of shocking to see Captain America die. You know, it's kind of shocking to see the Fantastic Four and all these other characters just getting wiped out. Uh, over the course of the story, with the assistance of Adam Warlock and Silver Surfer, Nebula uh, comes in and basically swipes the gauntlet from Thanos, uh, undoes all of the deaths up to that point with her powers just to be kind of in your face Thanos, and then declares herself the new god of the universe. Um, and then Adam Warlock has to beat her over the last uh, issue, basically, uh, to take control of the gauntlet and the stones. And that sets up the spinning out of this uh, limited series, a new monthly title called Infinity Watch, which is about Adam Warlock and his buddies, basically, and their, you know, wacky adventures, basically, uh, you know, dealing with the Infinity Gauntlet and the stones. And Thanos, who survives the story, uh, you know, at the end and, uh, you know, is still out there being evil, basically. It's fun. It's a, you know, it's it, it's a good story. Obviously, there's a reason that the Marvel uh, movies went to it, right? Like, it's very dramatic. Uh, and it was a, a smash hit, uh, more so than any of the other non-Secret Wars stuff that Marvel had done over the previous four or five years. And so Marvel you know, is delighted with it and basically says, this is what we're doing every year for the next couple of years after that, right? Over the next two years in 1992 and 1993, we get two more infinity stories basically as like, you know, sequels to this. Uh, infinity War comes out in 1992, which is about Adam Warlock having to like deal with controlling the incredible power that he has with because of the gauntlet. Uh, and he gets put on trial by like cosmic powers of the universe over like whether he is a good uh, custodian of the stones at the same time that like he accidentally has recreated his evil opposite counterpart, the Magus, who was a bad guy from the 70s uh, in the Starlin uh, Strange Tales stories, basically. Uh, the Magus is, you know, like this master villain who is revealed in his big climactic scene to be an alternate version of Adam Warlock from the future. Uh, and he got killed, but Adam Warlock accidentally brings him back from the dead with his powers over the course of Infinity War. That one was a six-issue limited series with 46 crossovers, setting a new high, breaking DC's record. Uh, and then 1993 ends with Infinity Crusade, another six-issue limited series, which then also has five additional issues of a comic called Warlock Chronicles, the last five issues of Infinity Watch, the regular monthly comic, and then 28 more crossovers on top of all of those. Uh, and in this basic story, uh, Warlock's good side, as opposed to his evil side represented by Magus, also decides to take over the universe uh, in the name of good, basically, and become a, a benevolent, uh, you know, kind of like master god, and then captures a bunch of superheroes to be her army. Uh, it's a, the, his good side, as it turns out, is a woman. Uh, and takes over a bunch of superheroes to be her army to basically, you know, spread the forces of good in taking over the universe. By the end of all of this, three years worth of stories, everybody, fans, writers, editorial, Marvel just in general, is pretty much exhausted 
with this story. They have done everything that they possibly could do with this. Uh, we are talking, you know, over a hundred and something issues of, you know, comics over three years. Um, and it probably, you know, it, it, it outlived it being fun, right? Like by the end of it, everybody was pretty much glad to see it go. But certainly the opening stories of it are very popular and well remembered. And uh, like I said, uh, you know, we're sufficiently well regarded that, uh, you know, the MCU decided to kind of like steal half of the story to make their movies. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to really comment on all of it. The early stuff is all pretty great. It's very, to this day, it's one of the ones that when you see memes, you see memes of, or, you know, uh, pe- just single panels, you'll see single panels of, you know, Captain America confronting Thanos or the other really, you know, standout moments from the first part. And then right, the part the way where, he's, uh, where he's got his hand, you know, like reaching out to crush Captain America and he's got both hands holding Thanos's hand comes from this, right? Like comes from that series. So Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, it's it's inspired. It's not the same story, but there's a lot of moments in the movies that are references to the comic, like for sure. Absolutely, yes. Um, but then the rest of it is kind of how do you feel about Adam Warlock? How much Adam <laughs> Warlock do you want to say? Uh, like to the point that they, I mean, they they do basically they introduce they. Well, he's not introduced here, right? He's been around. He's been around since the early seven. Well, if you go all the way back, he came. He first showed up in the '60s when he was him in Fantastic Four. He was a he's a Kirby creation originally, but it was Jim Starlin who turned that character into Adam Warlock and made a different character out of him. Right, and that was in the '70s. Yeah, I mean they they basically use him up completely during this during this whole thing, right? Because I think he comes back. In two thousand, like four, and he has a major role in Guardians of the Galaxy, which we're going to see coming up here soon, also in a movie. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll get the rest of Infinity uh, Saga. We'll just get, you know, uh, just drag it. it out over multiple movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of the '70s Adam Warlock, so I gave it a lot of rope. And this was coming along, right? Like I was, you know, I was out of college by this point. I was, you know, uh, it, it was an effort to get out and like, you know, to pay attention and hang with comics, uh, you know, at that point. Um, and this was one I definitely went out and followed because I had been a big fan of Starlin's 70s Strange Tales, uh, Adam Warlock, right? Like that's that was my era. I was totally into that. And this is not that good. Uh, it definitely, like, as I say, it, it, it drags, right? Like it was, I was delighted to have him back in the first one. And by the third one, I was like, I don't need to hear any more Adam Warlock stories. I'm done. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I've never read the seventies ones because I read this and then I read all of the guardians run. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the guardians run goes through the entire, you know, rise and fall. It basically hits all the same story beats in like maybe 16 issues instead. Um, right. I think that might even be overselling it. Um, and, you know, by then I was like, okay, I've had, I've had enough Adam Warlock. Yeah. Right. Um, he loses his sense of humor over the course of it too. Right. Like the original seventies, Adam Warlock stuff was very surreal and very, and funny, you know, like darkly funny uh, in that, you know, like Jim Starlin kind of like taking the piss from the rest of the Marvel you know, uh, bullpen at the time. Uh, you know, it was definitely Jim, Jim Starlin seems like he sobered up. <laughs> right. And oh. so therefore once he go, once he kind of like sobered up a bit, the stories became less just like dementedly fun and more, I'm concentrating very hard on making a big Epic, right. I'm making a big war story and it's dramatic and it's, you know, uh, every scene is just like kind of dripping with, uh, with, with, menace and that sort of thing and there was no there's no sense of fun even pip isn't funny at the end of it and i mean and and again it works for an infinity gauntlet um and then like i do not think of uh adam warlock as a funny character like that's not at all the because i haven't read the character really isn't funny but the stories were funny okay so yeah Uh, literally he defeats some aliens by throwing pies in their faces at one point so Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, that sounds 
That sounds <laughs> like not the Adam Warlock as I think of him. Right. Yeah. You should check uh, out the seventies ones for them. It's it's Starlin. It's Starlin as a kid, basically, and it's uh, it is definitely he is pushing some boundaries of like what he's allowed to do, basically. So, I'll I'll definitely consider that. I'm I'm trying right now to keep up with, uh, you know, Marvel, uh, you know, the the weeklies. Sure. Um. So that's taking. Oh, and thank God you are because I'm not. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, some of it's good for the, so for the purposes uh, of this of, of of this podcast. I have to keep coming back over the stuff that I missed when I decide we're going to do an episode. So yeah, uh, yeah. So some of it's good. Uh, I can't believe they just published a ten issue series where uh, an eternal basically just gives people thumbs up or thumbs down. Like it's sort yes. of <laughs> yeah. Hey, okay, I did read that. So yes. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I was talking to someone recently about how Marvel comics don't have to make money anymore, and how it's really sometimes opened up the uh, opened up the stuff that they're willing to greenlight. Yes. Um, but yeah. yeah, the idea that Marvel's an IP factory, IP factory only, uh, is uh, you know, yeah, a big, a big feature the world, of the current uh, age. Yes, right. A big thing about Eternals, where there's not where there's a. Uh, you know, mostly just the eternal giving people thumbs up or thumbs down for twelve issues. Yeah, sure, whatever. Right. <laughs> well, once again, that's the you know that's the Silicon Age, right? Like, I mean, that's the because comics are not the important part anymore. And it's sort of beautiful in some ways, and really surreal and weird in other ways. Yep. So anyway, DC, of course, sees Infinity Gauntlet making a pile of money, and you know they are uh, they they they're. Uh, charging headlong with their, you know, policy of doing, uh, uh, you know, the the limited series every year, um, and they decide to kind of steal in 1991. They swipe the 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 move from the playbook that Marvel had been using, where that where they do basically uh, an opening issue of a series, basically, then do the 13 summer annuals. Uh, tell the story and then one issue at the end so it's kind of like a two issue limited series as bookends to a set of annuals to tell uh their story going forward right rather than doing a full uh you know kind of like spin-off into the the monthly titles and so their 1991 counter to uh to uh, infinity gauntlet is armageddon 2001 which was still 10 years in the future at the time and it's by archie goodwin and dan jurgens uh, with the assistance of Denny O'Neill and Dick Giordano. And the basic premise of this one is in the far-off distant land of the distant future of 2030, uh, a villain called Monarch has taken over the world in the DC universe. And nobody knows who he really is, but he's super cosmically powerful. And uh, the superheroes have all failed to stop him. Most of the superheroes are dead. And so a time-traveling rebel scientist called Wave Rider, decides to travel back in time to 2001, which is still 10 years in the future from the, you know, the date that the comic's coming out, right, to figure out who Monarch really is and to, like, learn how he can be defeated by figuring out his backstory. So each annual that uh, came out that summer for each of their regular monthly comics was set 10 years in the future of that series and just has Wave Rider basically kind of like watching the events of 10 years of the future of every comic. Right. And so we would see all of these different characters to, you know, the writer's versions of like what would happen 10 years in the future from their current plot line, basically. Okay. That's a premise. That's a thing that we can work with. However, of course, this goes horribly wrong. The original plot of the story as done, you know, by Goodwin and Jurgens, uh, you know, when they laid it out, had the actual payoff being that the bad guy was Captain Adam. Captain Adam was the guy who was going to turn into Monarch and, you know, eventually conquer the world. He would turn evil and cause all of these problems. However, fairly early in this process, before the comics had even actually come out, before the first issue, starting before the annuals had actually come out, uh... The word that uh, the, the the payoff basically got leaked to the public. Uh, what happened basically was that a comic a, a magazine at the time called Comic Buyer's Guide had a 900 number that you could call because this was the era of one 900 numbers. 
in which you would get like special industry scoops. And whoever was working for that, you know, scoop line basically had talked to some people at DC and had basically inadvertently gotten the information that the payoff was going to be that Captain Adam is the bad guy. And he put it on the 1-900 number and it very quickly spread through the rest of the industry and everybody knew how the mystery was going to come out. Uh, DC did not care for that. And so literally at the absolute last minute, and many people would argue well past what the last minute should have been, they changed their minds and uh, changed the payoff. So instead of it being Captain Adam turning out to be the bad guy, it was Hawk from Hawk and Dove instead. This made no sense, right? Like they don't change all of the clues that were leading up to Captain Adam in the first place. Uh, In fact, the Hawk and Dove annual story basically proves that Hawk could not have been Monarch, right? Like the literal story, like eliminates him as a suspect, basically. And yet at the end, they still decide to go ahead and announce that Hawk is in fact actually the bad guy. And nothing that you have read to this point, uh, you know, if you were following the mystery at all, you the, the, the clues that we've given out to this point don't make any sense anymore. Uh, this was a disaster. <laughs> Fans are angry. Angry. The professionals are angry. Carl Kiesel, who was the main writer of Hawk and Dove, was not considered, was not uh, contacted about this before it happened. <laughs> so basically, his comic got canceled because his main guy became bad guy. <laughs> right? Out from under him without anybody telling him. He kind of like famously said uh, about the series afterwards when being interviewed, he says, well, Hawk and Dove was a love story. And then one day Hawk went insane and murdered Dove end (laughs) right that was his take basically on like how the story actually wound up going once he was fired from the job you know without uh without without being consulted on how any of this happened um so dc just got raked over the coals for this it was you know like a disaster a lot of their uh professionals working in the comics uh, uh were very unhappy with editorial they were like, if if this can happen to Carl Kiesel, it can happen to any of us, right? You know, like, how can we ever trust you people again? DC's management eventually agreed that this was a terrible idea. And though they have never kind of like, well, they've, they've, they've retconned the story uh, during Infinite Crisis. Uh, they basically changed Monarch's backstory again to, you know, like something that was considerably less stupid basically. Uh, And Jeff Johns did a JSA story that revealed that Hawk had not just gone insane, but was in fact being manipulated from behind the scenes by Mordru. uh, And, you know, it wasn't his fault, basically, that he, you know, had been, he'd been mind controlled by a supervillain. All of this, of course, wound up getting undone in the, uh, you know, Flashpoint and everything. So none of this is part of continuity anymore. Uh, But, you know, they they made some efforts to try to fix it, but it was at that point uh, way past too late to do anything about it. And so everybody kind of remembers Armageddon 2001 as just one of the most disastrous uh, summer crossovers that ever happened. Yeah, wow. It, so, would it have worked? So, I, I didn't read the what what came out of this or what came before it. Um, but would it have worked if it was Captain Adam? Probably, Captain Adam would have had some fans who were mad. But I mean, you know, the the, the story at least would have made sense, right? The clues would have made sense. You could still be mad that they did it to Captain Adam. You know, I don't think anybody was, uh, you know, delighted. Uh, I, I, you can't you can't turn a superhero into a massive world conquering killing everybody supervillain without some people getting mad, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's that was true. kind of like that was kind of just like bought into the premise of it. Once you've decided once of your villain one of your heroes is going to go mad and kill everybody, some people are going to be unhappy about it. But at least the Captain Adam one would have made sense and might have done something interesting with the character. Makes sense. Yeah. So you know. Ooh. The loss of like the Hawk and Dove series basically just seemed like such an unnecessary sacrifice because it was a good series that just got killed for, you know, because they felt bad that they'd leaked the story. And they decided, you know, we still, it, it, you know, it needs to be a mystery. Everybody, everybody out there who knows how this is coming out, like we need to prove them wrong was their point, right? And it was such like a wrongheaded business decision that, uh, you know, they were mocked for years about it basically. <laughs> At the same time, 
there is the other series that George Perez was working on that like had him leave uh, the Infinity, uh, uh, the, the, the first Infinity Gauntlet story. Uh, originally, it was called War of the Gods. Um, and this was uh, Perez kind of like finishing out his contract, right? Like when he had uh, finished Crisis, his big thing was taking over Wonder Woman. And he had been the writer and artist on Wonder Woman for five years at that point. Uh, big crossover event was kind of like his farewell to Wonder Woman, and it was during the in the year that was Wonder Woman's fiftieth anniversary. So it was supposed to be this whole kind of like big Wonder Womany event. Um, it's a four issue limited series. Uh, that was tied into the last four issues of his run on Wonder Woman, plus 21 other crossovers over the course of uh, DC. And once again, remember, this is happening at the same time. This this starts before Armageddon 2001 ends, right? So this is actually connecting to like the monthly comics where the annuals are all connected to uh, Armageddon 2001. So this is kind of one of the first times you see that like literally the summer crossovers are messing with both sides, right? There's, they've they've all taken up like all of the annuals, and they're also jumping into the middle of like the regular monthly continuity stories at the same time. So like fans are starting to say, you know, each time one of these things happens, like the storyline that I was following in my home comic gets messed up, right? Like it's I'm 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 starting to get unhappy about these events. The first kind of like negative fan awareness uh, and kind of fan opinion of these kind of like going bad really kind of starts in 1991 with these two stories going on simultaneously. Uh, the story of War of the Gods is basically uh, Cersei, Wonder Woman's archvillain, uh, evil witch, basically sorceress, tries to kill Gaia, the goddess of Earth, and as part of the storyline, puts pits the Greek gods against the Roman gods. Right. So it's like the, the the Greek and Roman gods are, you know, like two separate sets of beings, many of whom are pretty much identical to each other with just a different name, because that's the relationship between the Greek and Roman gods. But in this setting, they are two, in fact, entirely different sets of beings. And they're kind of fighting over who gets to be the god of the underworld and who gets to be the god of thunder and whatever and the god of the oceans, et cetera, right? Like basically, you know, Hercules versus Heracles, basically, uh, you know, these battles. And the Amazons are all caught in the middle of this war between the gods, basically. Um, it's gorgeous. It's, you know, George Perez working at the very top of his game. Not a lot of story to it. It's mostly just gods fighting each other. Um, so it doesn't, you know, really kind of like stand out for anything particularly notable. Um, Perez was very mad at DC during this process because uh, he had editorial disputes over the plot, right? Like he had done this whole setup uh, as he approached kind of like the end of his run uh, with the Wonder Woman regular monthly comic where Steve Trevor was going to marry Etta. Wonder Woman's friend, Etta Candy, uh, at the end, right? Like the big payoff, the big dramatic payoff after all of this was going to be these two supporting characters marrying each other and Steve Trevor would no longer be uh, Wonder Woman's romantic, you know, uh, possibility basically, right? He was gonna like kind of end that relationship and marry Steve off to another character. DC said, okay, that's cool, but we would like to actually delay that plot point to after you're gone. Right, like we think that the, the 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 final battles of the war between the Greeks and the Romans should be the climax of your story, and so while we're okay with this plot line eventually happening, we don't want it to happen in your run. We're going to give that to somebody else to write. That's right. Really George was like, "It was my fucking idea. What do you mean you're going to give it to somebody else to write?" You know, kind of thing. So he was very unhappy with them about that, and then they had also promised him because it was Wonder Woman's 50th anniversary and everything, that there was going to be a whole lot of promotion of this title, right? Like this was going to be the big blowout thing that they did that year. Well, it turned out DC uh, had a rough year financially the year or so before that, and they didn't have the money to do the kind of like level of promotion uh, that Perez felt that he'd been promised, right? And so he was very disappointed that his 
you know, after everything that he had done for DC over the previous five or six years, that his kind of like farewell to his beloved series was not getting the big promotional push that like he thought that he deserved and which I, you know, frankly, have to kind of agree with him. Um, you know, yes, it's a big ego thing, but still, if anybody at that point had earned a big ego thing, I think George Perez is a pretty solid answer. Um, so he was very mad at DC over the handling of this. And after War of the Gods was over, he wouldn't work for them for years. It took years to kind of, you know, have the bad feelings settle down before Perez was willing to come back to work for DC again. Eventually he did, but it took almost a decade of him being mad at them first before it happened. So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It is just kind of gods punching each other. Like basically, yeah, there's not a lot else to it. So, yeah, I mean the the marriage I think probably would have at least given it some like I don't know, lasting something. I don't know. Well, it, and in the end it turned out not to not happen. Right? Like this whole the 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 next Wonder Woman writers or whatever time wound up going in a completely different decision, a completely different direction. So, it's like big event that was like being set up, you know, kind of like crashed headlong into rebooting the universe multiple times, and they weren't willing to give up Steve Trevor as a boyfriend for Wonder Woman. So, yeah, um, is the George Perez run as a whole like is it something worth reading? I've heard people talk a lot about it a lot of times, actually. I think it it it's it's a mixed bag. I think the first year was really good. Right, all all the kind of you know like resetting Wonder Woman and making tying her much more to the Greek gods, the Greek mythos, and everything. I think that works really well. All of the stories about you know Hercules and Hippolyta and uh, the backstory of the of the gods and that sort of thing. Um, once that's over, I don't think he really has anything special else to say about her. It keeps going for several years after that with a bunch of other you know characters running around and. Uh, a whole new supporting cast for Wonder Woman and everything, and some of some of that's okay, but really it doesn't. You know, he he was there to tell the story, right? Of like the Greek gods, he wanted to do that whole big epic, and after that, I don't think he had another great idea for Wonder Woman after that. Yeah, that's my take sense. anyway. But on the other hand, it's all George Perez art, and I am a big fan of George Perez's art. So you know, there's fifty some odd issues of him doing almost 60 issues of, 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 of him doing the art for Wonder Woman and every one of them is beautiful if you like Perez's stuff. So, Yeah, I do. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll get to reading it sometime. Uh, Wonder Woman is yeah. a character I read a lot. So <laughs> so where do we go next? Um, so the next thing we do, um, so uh, in 1990, that was 1991 when we had these two series crashing into each other. 1992, Marvel doesn't really do a big crossover well, they're still doing uh, the Infinity War, kind of, right? Like this. Is... Well, yeah, exactly. I was going to say '92. It's we have the we have the sequels, basically, uh, to to those. 1992 is also the Avengers have a big mini crossover, like the X Men used to, right? Like a big event, basically, that's like in the Avengers and also goes to the solo comics of every Avenger, um, and that was uh, Operation Galactic Storm, right? Um, which we're not really going to cover here. I don't. It doesn't kind of like meet our qualifications. But if you care about it, it's basically the Kree Shi'ar war. It's a big, you know, superhero take on Operation Desert Storm, obviously, which was, you know, had just happened the previous year, etc. So it's a, uh, it's not good. <laughs> so the big crossover DC does in '92 is uh, once again one of my favorite weird ones. I don't think it really quite works, but I'm delighted that it happened because it's so strange. And it's called Eclipso, the Darkness Within. And this is, once again, a two-issue bookend limited series. Right? It has a first issue and then 18 annuals uh, that happen in between them and then the close issue. And then two new comics spin out of the uh, uh, at the end of the series, pick up with the end of the limited series. Um, it is written by uh, Keith Giffen and Robert Lauren Fleming doing his first kind of like consistent work for DC. He had done some kind of like fill in bits uh, before that. And he he was personally friends with Giffen and Giffen basically got him this job so that the two of them could work together on this. And uh, the limited series has Bart Sears uh, art in it. Um, Fleming, uh, Robert Lauren Fleming, 
if you think you know they had trouble with Engelhart and George Perez, oh my God, did they have problems with Robert Lauren Fleming? Uh, he was uh, not a superhero guy at all. He thought superheroes were dumb, uh, and he was very much about doing kind of like a big, uh, you know, fantastical uh, religious text. Basically, he was, you know, he was he was doing a uh, almost a Dan Brown kind of thing, right? Like of like this is literally this is a story about God, <laughs> right? And like the cosmic powers of God, basically. Um, and so Darkness Within kind of like recasts Eclipso, who had always been this kind of like relatively goofy character up to that point, um, you know, was a scientist who had been taken over, possessed by uh, an evil black diamond that like turned, made his face into like an eclipse symbol, like half of his face was dark. Uh, and he would go around trying to, you know, like mind control other people and fight Batman, basically. Right. And Giffen and Fleming basically rewrote that character so that he was no longer just this kind of like ordinary earthbound guy, but he was basically the wrath of God, the personification of the, uh, the not the righteous vengeance of God, who is the specter, but the unrighteous wrath of God who, when he's angry. God when he's pissed, God when when God is not thinking correctly, <laughs> right? Kind of thing. The 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 wrath uh, of of an anger that overwhelms your ability to think rationally about a problem. That's what Eclipso represented, basically. So he gets this whole new story that kind of like relates him to the Spectre and all of this, right? Like he's this is this the uh, we learned that the it wasn't the Spectre who caused the flood for Noah. Right, because that was God being irrationally angry. That was Eclipso, right? So he gets this whole kind of like power glow up, becomes a specter level uh, bad guy, starts distributing black diamonds around the universe to uh, take over the minds of various heroes and villains and everything. And, uh, you know, like the payoff is basically a massive fight uh, in which the heroes basically drive him off but don't successfully defeat him. And uh, spinning out of that series, Valor, who was used to be Monel in Legion, but was now in our time, basically, got his own series because he had been kind of the core of the fight against Eclipso had been kind of centered around him. And so he got a solo series that came out of this. And then Eclipso got his own solo series that came out of this that had a bunch of different artists uh, working on it. Giffen and Fleming doing the scripting again. Uh, both of them, I mean, Giffen isn't the, the easiest guy in the world to get along with, but Fleming was much worse. And so it took about a year and a half for them to like burn every bridge at, bridge at DC and get their comic canceled. Um, and so it never really wound up quite going anywhere. Their whole, you know, like setup was very impressive. Uh, but the payoff of the series, unfortunately, doesn't really kind of quite work. And it just sort of kind of peters off to nothing. It's a shame because when it was good, the high points of what they were doing were so well written and such like fabulous cosmic craziness or whatever that I would have been delighted to see it keep going. But obviously they, you know, was a uh, was was not a thing that was meant to be. I do recommend it both the uh, both the Darkness Within limited series and particularly the Eclipso solo series, which, like I said, it's I think it's about 18 issues that it goes. Um, I recommend them, even though I can't actually say that they end well. Right. It doesn't really work at the end. This is actually one that I have not read because I missed it on our uh, thing. Um, Eclipso comes up a couple times afterwards in like Justice League and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they keep they keep that origin. Right. Like that's that that sticks to the character. So like the next, uh, you know, kind of time we see Eclipso after this is the Gene Loring becomes Eclipso as part of the whole, uh, you know, coming out of uh, identity crisis. And so like the idea that, you know, Eclipso is like the, the 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 living embodiment of like irrational wrath and anger basically has kind of like stuck to the character. Um, but he's you know, they've 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 basically taken God out of the story, <laughs> you know. They've they've decided that's a little too uh that that might be a little too much weight for a uh, you know a superhero story to to carry. Yeah, makes sense. It's totally worth your time, like I said, to 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 fans out there, if you have not read it uh and are want to see an interesting failed experiment, uh, you know, I totally recommend checking it out. The last one we're gonna cover today 
is the uh, the DC title in 1993. That was uh, while Marvel was still doing its third uh, run of uh, Infinity Foolishness over there. The, the 1993 summer event for DC is once again an utter disaster. Uh, this one was called Bloodlines. Bloodlines changed up the format a little bit, uh, in which it, it started by taking place over the course of 23 summer annuals and then got its uh, limited series at the end, right? So it didn't do bookends, basically. It started with the annuals, ran through all the annuals, and then had a two-issue limited series at the end to kind of finish the story. Uh, it was done by uh, Dan Raspler with uh, Chuck uh, Wakevich, was the wrote the, the two-issue limited series, basically, and did the plotting that started up the annuals. And this is this is a weird one. The premise of the story is a bunch of really disgusting aliens uh, invade Earth in order to uh, feed on our spinal fluids. Uh, apparently, like our you know our spinal column and brain uh, fluids and tissues and everything are super tasty to these aliens, and they keep kind of like attaching themselves to the backs of our necks, basically, and like sucking all of our you know uh, all, all the juice out of us. But the process of doing that, the process of getting one of these things attached to you, uh, somehow it activates a whole bunch of people's metagenes, right? Like some percentage of all of the people that they kill this way, instead of getting killed, get superpowers, right? So like 90% of the people who have this happen to them die, and then 10% of them get superpowers. So this is an opportunity to introduce a whole bunch of new superheroes to the setting all of whom have the shared origin of, well, a gross alien tried to suck my brains out of the back of my neck, but it didn't work, and now I'm a superhero. <laughs> there's a, you know, over the course of the story, there's a giant monster in a crashed spaceship that all of these guys are trying to feed. And in the final two-issue series, all of these guys, like the DC's main heroes, all get taken out, except for Superman. Uh, and Superman has to team up with, like, the 23 other heroes who all just made their debuts. <laughs> that summer, basically, uh, to form like a giant army, basically, to go kill this monster and save the day. These characters, with one exception, are the most forgettable, awful, 90s, stupid 90s awfulness characters that you could <laughs> imagine. It's exactly, you know, the sort of uh, uh, Rob Liefeld foolishness that like we spend years making fun of afterwards. Right? It's, they all have names like Nightblade and Ballistic and gunfire and <laughs> hook they're all they all have mullets and they I all have terror smith personally i think he's fantastic what terror smith apparently is one of them. terror smith yeah that's one of them they all have mullets they all have rat tails they all have giant guns and knives and whatever somehow an enormous percentage of them their powers are basically i shoot you or oh. i stab you um they're just terrible with one notable exception that the one good character who came out of all of this was uh, Garth Ennis and Dennis McRae created Hitman, the Demon Annual, and Hitman's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Hitman is a is a it was a fabulous series. If you like Garth Ennis, he's a you know he's a perfect Garth Ennis character. Uh, he is of course like the others, you know, like a completely moronic character idea. He's an assassin basically who's a uh, super good at shooting people, and he also incidentally has X-ray vision and a bit of telepathy. But he's a much funnier character than everybody else in this. They're all just like terrible, terrible characters. Besides this, so seeing this team of Superman and a bunch of Nightblade ballistic gunfire guys basically fighting the aliens. Oh, it's just the worst. It's awful. Since then, thankfully, DC has mostly forgotten these guys exist. And every so often, uh, they get killed off in the backgrounds of other stories. Right? <laughs> they literally, of the 23 of them, I think 18 of them are dead at this point, mostly from being killed in other stories as like, you know, just like a, a throwaway scene to establish like a, a bad guy or something. Literally, in Infinite Crisis number seven, just that one issue, Superboy Prime kills five of them. <laughs> awesome. Over the course of just one story, he kills five of them. Just so he would have somebody there to kill who wouldn't be important, who nobody would miss or, or, or you know, care about. Yeah. Poor. I think he also kills someone named Wildebeest, which has always amused me. He kills Wildebeest. Wildebeest was a Titans character, actually. Yeah, he kills Wildebeest and Panther. 
tears off Risk's arm, a whole bunch of other stuff happens. But literally, he kills five of these Schmo heroes who had like not appeared since 1993 because nobody wanted them, nobody liked them. Literally, they were one for 23 in actually making likable, worthwhile characters to stick around. That's a terrible percentage. That's pretty. That's like that's like that's like a four percent success rate. It's like ninety six percent failure rate. There's the whenever they try and create a whole crap ton of new characters all at once, it's it's a very low success rate plan. Mm -hmm. Like because superheroes are individualistic, and you don't want to be. I am one of twelve guys made by some asshole. Right, exactly. And they had no, there was nothing else connecting them, right? Like, literally, the only thing they all had in common was once a creepy, gross alien attached itself to my neck. Right? That's, that's, your, that's your shared story. That's, that's what you have in common together. I can't imagine why you don't get along. <laughs> did they become a team after this? Or did they, like... It, there there like, were several efforts to make subgroups of them a team. Okay. Right. Like it's cause like I said, twenty three guys was like too many people to have on one team for anything, right. right? Unless you're like the Legion, basically. But there were at different times over the next couple of years efforts to get like five or six of them onto a team. Yeah. One of them had a there was a team a team up at one point where like uh, Jade hadn't appeared in a while either, and like Jade was gonna be the leader of like a team of some of them. And that got cancelled right away. So Yeah, Jade always seems to get the short end of the stick. Yeah, certainly true. So yeah, so now we've come to the end of 1993, and you would think that uh, you know the idea of the summer crossover would have been discredited, right? They have been very unpopular recently. Uh, that none of them are selling very well, and you would think that uh, you know maybe we were coming to the end of this particular uh, format. But you would be terribly wrong, as you will find out in our next episode. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's it's uh, fun to know that the uh, the complaint of this these uh, these crossovers keep interrupting the story I'm reading uh, has been happening you know for forty years now or thirty yeah, years pretty much thirty thirty definitely all right well thank you all for joining us I've been Steve Tasker I'm Darren Watts and once again if you like this sort of thing please let us know um, or if you hate this sort of thing please let us know get on our uh, Patreon. In our discord and uh start telling us what you do want to hear if you don't like this yeah absolutely uh have a good night thanks for coming